Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Teramah, which means contribution. And if you noticed, especially in the sections that we looked at from the apostolic readings there from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and Luke chapter 7 into chapter 8, those were big themes of those particular passages. And you can see some of the other previous studies we've done at uh, halal.info slash p19. They're on the particular topic that we're looking at here today. But one way that you could characterize the section that we're starting in here uh, in the Torah, starting in Exodus chapter 25, and it's going to go through the end of Exodus, you might say, is a testimony of God with us. Because in actuality, that is what the tabernacle is. Because the way markers of the tabernacle really are that uh, As it says there in Exodus 20, verse 2, which comes from the Ten Commandments, it's the preamble, it's often also called the part of the first commandment. You know, people think, oh, the first commandment is, uh, have no other gods before me. But really, it's the full part that starts where it says, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, therefore have no other gods before me. Because you're saying specifically, why have no other gods before me? Because no other deities have taken you out of the house of bondage. No other deities have gone through and crushed the opposing forces that were against you. And as we, we relive each time we go through the Passover, it is our own personal deliverance, our own personal deliverance from our own house of bondage. And our own deliverance from our own house of bondage to our previous lives, what we were before, follows a very similar path. You are free. You cry out because you don't, you're, you're enslaved and you don't want to be enslaved anymore. You want to be free. So you cry out and then the Lord delivers you out but in the process has to break the stronghold that is, that is holding you. And thus is what you see with the whole Passover and Exodus with the plagues, all the plagues that come along, and they break the power that is holding you. They break it. But that power that is holding you will pursue you. Because that power that is holding you does not want you to be free. It wants to hold you back. And just as we are going to see as we continue on going through the Exodus account, both here in Exodus and then when we get kind of get back into the account back in the book of Numbers, you will see that, yes, the force that is holding you doesn't want you to be free, will pursue you, but... You yourself want to go back to the house of bondage because you think 
that things were better in the house of bondage. Oh, as we will see, hey, the, the food was better, things were great. Well, you didn't remember the chains and crying out for release. You didn't remember any of that. So now that you're free, you want to go back. Or as you see an account in the book of Proverbs, you know, a dog returns to its own vomit. It just sounds disgusting. But, you know, you, if you have dogs, you can see that happening. And you can say, oh, that's disgusting. Doesn't the dog know what that is? Well, we ourselves, when we go back to our own, quote, vomit, our own, quote, house of bondage, do we remember what that was? Do we remember why we were crying out for help and what that is all about? So, thus we see here in this, um, in Teramah, you see a beginning part of this testimony of God with us, Emmanuel, the one who pitches his tent among us. And so you see that the creator liberator of Israel, the people of God, first created a place for humanity. And you see that when we roll back the tape all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2, you see the creation of the universe, and inside the universe is the earth, and inside the earth is Gan Eden, or the Garden of Eden. And inside Eden is humanity, man and woman, the first couple that starts out humanity. So each one of these things is creating a place. The creator is creating a place for humanity to be. And then you also see that in Genesis 3.8, you see the account of the Lord walking in Gan Eden. Walking there to what? Just out for a stroll? To be with humanity. To be with that first couple. That is the desire of, of the creator is to be with humanity. And thus, you see that when we advance down into the section we're looking at here today, and there's lots of examples of this, where the Lord desires to be among Israel. We see in 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 Exodus 25, 8, that one of the reasons why this tabernacle that we saw described, or I should say starting to describe in it might seem excruciating detail as to how to build the thing. The point of that is, is for a place where the creator of heaven and earth can dwell among mankind. So that from there, all of Israel around can draw humanity back to the creator. As we saw that when we were back in Exodus 19, leading up to Sinai with the Ten Commandments, one of the purposes of bringing Israel out of the house of bondage and to the mountain to receive this testimony of the Lord was to equip the people of God to be a priesthood. The whole nation was to be a priesthood. There would be a subset out of that nation that was to be the closest servants of the creator of heaven and earth in his embassy on earth called the tabernacle. But that was there to be a place for heaven and earth to reconnect yet again. 
So when we go on further, we can look, and it seems like this particular passage that we looked at here today seems like it's out of place. Because when you go in the accounts, we go in the uh, Torah passage Yitro, which is Exodus 18 through 20, and in our good part of chapter 20, and includes the Ten Commandments in there. Then you've got to Mishpatim, which we saw last week, which covers Exodus 21 through 24. And we leaves off there at the end of that particular passage, Moshe is going up the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain to be with God to get the Ten Commandments, to hear the testimony of the Lord. Now, then comes the section we're looking at here. And when you see the progression of things, this section, you might say, well, it should be uh, placed later. It should actually be in chapter 35. Back, that's chapter 35 of Exodus is where you have the description. They are building the tabernacle. They are receiving the contributions to build the tabernacle. But why is this thing right here? Because... It's very similar to the passages that we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and Luke chapter 7 going into chapter 8. Who is thankful for the work of the Lord to bring contributions? Those who are forgiven little or those who are forgiven much? So in a sense... What you're seeing here is a preamble to the outpouring that is going to come after the golden calf. Because after those 40 days when Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone and getting the account that we're looking at here today and we'll be looking at next week, comes back down and the people of Israel, the ones who were delivered out of slavery, the ones who heard that first message saying, I am the Lord your God who took you out of bondage. Have no other gods before me. They went right back to the house of bondage to go take a page and say, hey, this is the one who took us out of Egypt. So, the sense of that and the correction that we're going to see coming after these 40 days and after Moses comes down from having the interaction with the God's presence, you see a correction coming at the golden calf. Then you see the outpouring of contributions, what we saw at the beginning part here, and it's recorded in Exodus 25. So this is a, a preamble you're saying, of gratitude for forgiveness of sins, a grievous sin. This is the biggest slap in the face at the golden calf that you can imagine. Someone who took Israel out of the house of bondage to create a priesthood, people who are going to draw the world back to the creator, who is going to get rid of the pain the death, the destruction, the hatred, all these things is going to bring all of that to an end again. That one, they rebelled against. And 
we can see with our own Egypt that when we come out of the house of bondage and we come into connection and get the testimony of the Lord, um, what is then going to happen? Um, Victor, I think that Larry has a comment or question over there. Yes, go ahead, Larry. I was going to say that uh, in our study of Romans, uh, Tim Haig pointed out that the, to the Jews, that, that portion of the, um, of the golden calf was what actually imparted the sin nature to the whole nation of Israel and has lasted forever. Yes. And so that is a big deal that you see the, I could say the beginning of the downhill slide that ends up with that first generation. Israel as a people, the people of God, have to be born again at the river Jordan before that second generation can go into the land, into that land of rest. They have to who? They have to do what first? They have to trust. We call that faith. They had to trust the one that delivered them out of the house of bondage. The first generation started, you could see the beginning of the downhill slide there with the golden calf, and then grew up to a crescendo, as we're going to see going through uh, the book of Numbers, that grew up to a crescendo to where they get up to the land. They send in people to see the land, even though they received a promise from the Lord, their God, who took them out of the house of bondage, breaking the back of a superpower in the process, they did not trust the one who delivered them from the house of bondage to actually deal with the other forces that were against them in the land where they were going. And the giants and the walls that were there were nothing compared to the power of Egypt. Because we remember this at the time, that Egypt was akin to the, had the power on the world stage of the Mediterranean, great uh, ancient Near East area of like the United States. People didn't mess with Egypt. Uh, and a corollary power was the, the empire of Het, or otherwise known as the Hittite Empire. They're up in modern-day Turkey area. But their empire stretched from modern-day Turkey down through what we call the Levant area or the Middle East where Lebanon and uh, Syria and Israel is. They, their empire stretched down, and right in the land of Israel, at that point it was Canaan or Canaan, they butted heads, and they fought war after war, after battle, after battle. You can see the great records of that when you go to Egypt. The Egyptians did all kinds of great <laughs> revisionist history of their conquests of the Hittite Empire and the other empires there in the land of Canaan. But that is what the creator of heaven and earth freed Israel from, was basically the United States of the time period, the big kid on the block, broke the back of that empire. And they're saying, 
when the second, when this first generation was going to go into a land that had nowhere near the military might of Egypt. They could not trust the one that broke the back of the empire that they left. And it's no coincidence then as to why we see plagues, why we see imagery of the tabernacle in the book of Revelation. Because when the creator of heaven and earth is hitting the reset button to bring the world back to how it was created, the things again, you have to break the back of the empire that is holding the world hostage in bondage to it doesn't even know that it's in bondage, just like you could see the people uh, that were enslaved in Egypt. They were crying out for help. But when they got free, many wanted to go back. They wanted to return to their own vomit, so to speak, to go back to the land of slavery yet again. So as we see that this particular passage here in Teramah is really then not a completely out of place. It is a preview you know, like you're watching a movie and they got flashbacks and sometimes they also have what you could say of um, uh, foreshadowing is another dramatic, um, a dramatic device that is used in both written literature and in film to kind of give you, for the people who are paying attention, you can see, oh, this is talking about something that's coming. Well, in a sense, what we looked at here today is a picture, and what we're going to look at next week is a picture of what's coming, of a great outpouring of gratitude. You wouldn't know that when we get to the account of the golden calf, but for those that have fallen and realize they have fallen, that great gratitude is expressed with an outpouring. And we'll be taking a look at that later when we get back into the account that we looked at in Luke chapter 7 and chapter 8. So as we see this, this is really a key place to be looking at this particular passage because these are some names that we had just, our, uh, our little trip through the architectural digest of the building of the tabernacle, this particular tent now, when we look at that account that we saw in the book of Kings, that's when the tent becomes a big building, a much bigger building. But it's based on the same kind of dimensions, same kind of architecture, same idea. And the same idea is what's re- expressed here. These are names for the uh, tent that we're looking at here. One is the Hamishkan, and that means the dwelling place. This is the place where heaven is dwelling amongst mankind. It's also known as the Ohel Moed, or the tent of meeting, or Moed is also could be translated appointment. This is the tent of the appointment, the, where heaven makes appointments with humanity on earth. And this is where heaven keeps those appointments. So you say, on the other hand, if, if heaven shows up and humanity doesn't, well, there you go. You 
missed the opportunity to have this encounter. And another thing that the, this place is called, it's called the Mishkan Ha-Edut. And that Hebrew term of Edut, which is translated testimony, is very important because it shows up in a couple of other key places. So the Mishkan Ha-Edut, or the dwelling place of the testimony. And what is inside the Mishkan Ha-Edut, or the tent or the dwelling place of the testimony, is the Aron Ha-Edut, or the Ark of the Testimony. We call it the, although also known as the Ark of the Covenant, and people think of you know, people with bullwhips and uh, nice hats uh, going around in adventures. But one of the key terms for that box that we saw described, that gold box where the Ten Commandment tablets are going to go into, is called the Aron Ha-Edut, or the Ark of the Testimony, the box that holds the testimony. Now, also, the tablets we're going to see as the account goes on is all called the Lachut Ha'edut, or <laughs> the tablets of the testimony. And the tablets of the testimony. So you could see as this thing expands out, what is that box? The Aron Ha'edut, the box of the testimony, it holds the Lachut Ha'edut, or the tablets of the testimony. Testimony, testimony, testimony. It is a testimony. So the tablets of the testimony, aka the tablets of the Ten Commandments, where these ten words were written on it that we saw back in Exodus chapter 20 and also reiterated for the second generation there in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So this key thing that you're seeing here with the tabernacle, this mishkan, is it is a dwelling place. Heaven is dwelling with mankind. But not just kind of like, oh, okay, it's there, kind of a nice monument you go by, you get a selfie with and keep going. But rather, this is the place of the testimony. Well, when you think of testimony, what is another name for or another word to describe testimony? Uh, Anne, do you have a comment or a question over there? Another name for that is covenant. also covenant. Okay, covenant is like a deal, contract. It is like you're writing a contract there. So testimony and, con and the covenant are not the same? They're, one contains the other one or... A covenant is a deal, and you say a deal is what do you, um, uh, and you could say a, a word that's akin to covenant is testament. Now, you might say, okay, well, it sounds similar to testimony, and you would be right, because when you think about a covenant, you think about a contract that you have. When you see all those ridiculously long pages and pages and pages and pages of legal mumbo-jumbo whenever you have to do a software update or you, you do, if you get a bank loan or something like this, and it goes on for pages and pages and pages. A part of that is the definitions of things and defining every single word. When we use this word, this is what we mean by that word. And a part of that is you are giving a testimony 
the person who is giving you this contract here that you will sign is saying, this is how I see these words. Do you agree? Are you on the same page with me, so to speak? So thus, the testimony is the revealing, we also say, revealing a character. As someone has character, it is their testimony over time. Because if the testimony today is the same as the testimony tomorrow, we would say that the testimony today and tomorrow is a part of or encapsulates the person's character, who that person is. So thus, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, are the Ten Statements of who the Lord is. So when you're making this deal, and we see in previous um, chapters there in Exodus, when the people were at the mountain, and they say, everything you said, we will do. You're saying, okay, we have met you, Lord, our God, who took us out of the house of bondage. So we've met you. You've revealed yourself to us. So now we will follow along with what it is that you want to do. And as we see in the Ten Commandments, when we went through that passage, that it is a revelation of heaven's connection with mankind and also mankind's connection with mankind. So when you see in the Gospels that it's to, when Yeshua, when Jesus is talking about the greatest commandment, we were saying here earlier today in services from Deuteronomy chapter 6, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And that is part of the greatest commandment. Now, the second greatest commandment, it comes from Leviticus 19.18. And the short form of that is, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the Ten Commandments encapsulated in both of those together. Yes, Larry. Um, if I understand correctly, the, um, there's a little bit of a difference between a contract and a covenant in that a contract, someone lays out, here's what I want to do. And then you get to say back, well, okay, but we're going to change this, and I want to do that, and I'm going to do this one differently. Whereas a covenant is, comes from one person who says, here's what I want, and you have the opportunity to accept or reject this, but you can't change any of it. Yeah, well, those are forms of, of covenants. Because, you know, if you um, open the hood, so to speak, and people have compared the various types of covenants, one of the... Um, one of the common ones you'll see the eggheads in ancient Near East history and literature will talk about is the vassal suzerain uh, covenant, where you are you have the sovereign and the vassal or the underling have a contract. Well, there it's basically the sovereigns. It's you could call it also call that a cram down contract because the sovereign say this is the way it's going to be. And if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen to you. So there's pretty much no wiggle room in here. But to a covenant, you can also have types of covenants where, yeah, it's a give and take where you will have negotiation over those. A lot of real estate contracts are like that. You know, if you have a lease or um, especially lease contracts, commercial lease contracts are a lot like that where you have a give and take between the property owner and the tenant about how that relationship is going to work. But 
if you got a really powerful landlord, it could be a suzerain vassal contract because they're like, hey, this is the way it's going to be. You want the space, sign it. So, yes. And, but the difference is, is that traditionally in those contracts, like what you see with Abraham with the splitting in half of yes. the animals and so on, normally it's the vassal who was supposed to walk between the, the animals. Yes. And basically, by him walking through the animals and that blood getting on his yes. shoes and even on his garments was supposed to be a reminder to him yep. of the consequences of disregarding the, 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 the sovereign Correct. contract. But you see in that vision with Abraham that he isn't the one that walks through. It's not his, his shoes aren't the ones getting blood on it. Correct. It shows God himself walking through those and his feet get covered in blood. Yes. Physically, I don't know, if, you know, he does literally have feet, but his feet are the ones that get covered in blood. His garments get covered in blood, not Abraham's. So that's the difference between the God we serve and these other so-called gods that other people serve. Yes. So thus you see a really big difference between any sort of deities that were revealed to people of the ancient Near East of the time period and what you see the Lord revealing himself, his testimony to Israel and through Israel to the entire world is, hey, this is quite different. I am making this deal. I will bring this to its conclusion. And just as Tammy said, that ancient tradition of how a suzerain vassal contract was consummated, the Lord is saying, if this deal goes bad, it will come upon me. I will take the punishment for it. Ding, 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 some, ding, uh, some bells should be going off in your head about uh, the Gospels here. Yeah, yes, Lorella. Oh, I'm sorry, Rose, go ahead, please. Well, to me, uh, the, the uh, testimony right here is a, is a double-edged sword mm. because it's a witness against us, Yes, but it's also words of life. Witness for you, witness against you. Right, so, I mean, it's, it's against you when you go against it, and it's for you when you obey it. Which should remind you about something, uh, kind of a cryptic uh, parabolic saying that Yeshua said that you should what? Blessed is he who falls upon the rock, but don't be the one that the rock falls on you. Yes. I mean, indeed. So that is where you see the great deliverance that heaven is giving through this and through Israel and to the whole world. So that is a very important thing when we're seeing here that this is the place where heaven is dwelling amongst mankind, but also revealing heaven to mankind and saying, okay, not only this is the character of the creator of heaven and earth, but this is the character of how those who want to reconnect with the creator of heaven and earth. They should live. But also, as we see with the New Covenant prophecy, and as we get into the ending part of Deuteronomy, where you see it reiterated, the, the Torah is reiterated for the second generation, that this, these words to be written upon the heart, that these words, these words of heaven, this testimony is to be written upon the heart. And how do we see that happen? This is a work that God does of drawing in and then 
transforming. And when we get into the book of Leviticus, you go, oh my goodness, if it wasn't bad enough with the architectural digest, then we're going to get into the, um, with the Harper's Guide to Butchery when we get into Leviticus. Well, in essence, when we see this, and we'll get into this a little bit further with the architecture of it, here's another rendition that um, someone a little bit more colorful, uh, recreation of it, but it just shows you this is to scale. So it is the tabernacle itself, as we saw those dimensions, not big. It's about roughly 150 feet long and roughly 75 to 100 feet wide. So it's not big at all. Now, when you get into the, we saw some of the dimensions when we were in Kings. Yeah, Solomon supersized it. It was much bigger of it. And then when you see some of the accounts in Revelation and also in the ending uh, chapters of Ezekiel, it gets even bigger. It's huge, gigantic. It's the, it's the size of most of the Middle East when you see the dimensions of it. So what is the picture? What we said, it's a sign that God has a big tent vision of it. Because why? It is to be filled with people. This is not an exclusionary club. The Lord wants to bring in as many people as possible. And as we see when we get into the book of Leviticus, one of the key lessons that we see in the tabernacle is you go in the front door, but through your trust in what is being communicated here, like we saw in the passage we read today, the pattern that was shown on the mountain, this system, that this revelation of what the testimony of the Lord is, that through going in the door, you would go to the altar. Your offering would go into the altar. And you would place your hands on your offering. It was for a sin offering. And then the blood of the sin offering would go on before you into that other, the inner tent. The inner tent that is within. And go in. A part of what's being communicated here is you have to be transformed when you go in towards God's presence. But that should also remind you of some things that you might have read in like the letter to Hebrews, because the letter of Hebrews there in the New Testament really encapsulates a lot of what is going on in the tabernacle and also going on specifically on the Day of Atonement, otherwise known as Yom Kippur. Uh, yes, Kerry and Danielle, I see your hands up. We'll go with uh, Kerry first. Uh, go ahead, please, Kerry. I just It's backtracking just a second, but yes. in alignment with what you and Tammy were bringing out about um, the covenants, what, uh, what popped in my mind was that that was actually a defining point where Hashem was showing the Israelites his true nature, yes. comparing himself against the other the false gods, because the the peoples who believed in the false gods they were basically at their mercy, and the gods were vengeful and took their vengeance. That was the belief, you know, that was part of the belief system. But with Hashem choosing to make covenants with His people, He was actually giving them the option to opt out, and it was. You know, and it was so it was their choice to align with him and to walk with him. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. And then I was just um, listening to something and it was talking about how much 
sorry, <laughs> how much the tabernacle is like um, ourselves. Mm, yes. So, just like God dwells inside of the tabernacle, and we must keep the tabernacle clean, um, we must keep ourselves clean, so then God can dwell in us. Yes, which is no coincidence then as to why the Apostle Paul is talking about that your body is what? It is a tabernacle of or a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And you thus have uh, from John chapter 1, verse 14, we get this picture that the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word literally there in Greek is for tabernacle, the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures for the Mishkan, the tabernacle. So the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. So the picture that you have is that the, <laughs> just like what you saw in Kings where the word of the Lord came to Solomon said, hey, build it like this. The word of the Lord came to Israel into flesh and said, okay, Emmanuel, God with us. God is dwelling here among you. And thus, when you see in the, the gospel of John, there in starting in verse uh, chapter 13, where he said, you know, I've got to go, but I've got to go so that another comforter is going to come along behind it. You know, one of the things we mentioned last week is that another name that we see in the prophets for the Messiah is, you know, Menachem or Comforter. He is the Comforter. So, in a sense, to those who knew those scriptures, the prophets, Yeshua was saying to them, I, Mashiach, the, the Comforter, must go so that the Comforter can come. The Spirit of God can come. So, together, the word and the spirit work as the great comforters, the consolation of the people of God into all the world. So as we move on here in the tabernacle, and you see as, uh, Daniel brought this up about that the tabernacle can be compared to like a face, like the face of God. And we see that, or the face of uh, humanity expressed with the word made flesh is that when we see here the um the ark of the covenant in the area of the holy of holies that we read about here today what's in the ark of the testimony the tablets of the testimony and yes but it's like, you know, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But it, heart is a biblical term to mean your mind. Where That's why when you see it reflected in, in the Gospels, it adds mind in there too, because that is really what heart means. It is the seat of what you are thinking, but also your emotions. Which of those is in control what you're thinking your emotions are they working together are they at odds with each other so in the tabernacle you see the mind of god 
expressed there with the tablets, with the ark of the testimony. Then you see the eyes of God, and we saw them described there as the candelabra, otherwise known as the menorah. Menorah just means the thing that makes light. So menorah is there reflecting upon the eyes of God looking throughout the earth as the prophets talk about that. And what do you see in Revelation chapter 2? You see the word of God walking amongst the seven lights, the seven lights of those seven congregations, a picture of the menorah. You see the Lord looking upon. Now, as we saw, you can see here in this particular diagram that the menorah is opposite from, and something we'll be taking a look at further and uh, next week and weeks to come, is the table of, it's called the table of showbread or the bread of the presence. The bread is really the bread of the face is how that literally is translated. So, this and those 12 loaves of bread there represent the 12 tribes. It represents Israel and what Israel does. It's, it's fruit, so to speak, from Israel. So the eyes of heaven are looking upon the deeds of Israel. Looking upon the deeds of Israel. So, like in the book of Revelation, where it starts out in chapter 2 as Yeshua is walking amongst the seven uh, lampstands, like the picture of a living menorah, living menorah of the, peop- the congregations of God. What is chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation all about? Talks about each congregation and what the Lord sees going on there. What are they doing? What is their connection to God? What is that resulting in? Some are connected really closely to God. So what they do, what results from their connection to God, their trust in God, is really beneficial for the whole world. But there are some, like some congregations like Laodicea, where they just don't really have any sort of close connections. They're not, as it's described, they're lukewarm. They're not hot on fire for God, really devoted to him. They're not cold to God. They're not against him. They're just kind of eh, in there in the middle. And because of that, you see, that heaven is what? Trying to call the world back away from the brink of disaster here that it's been going on year after year, century after century, eon after eon, just keeps sliding downhill. So heaven keeps trying to call people away from that. Heaven doesn't need lukewarm people. I mean, you know, you, you think of this like in the Titanic. I mean, lukewarm people are like, eh, well, maybe there's lifeboats around. Uh, you, you might find them if you wander around the deck some. I mean, what use would a lukewarm safety crew on a boat like the Titanic that's going down, what use would they be? None. No use. Because you think about in, in a company today, those are the, the uh, category of people we call the quiet quitters. 
These are people that are just punching the clock, doing the minimum to not get fired, but are there, they're not really contributing to the health of the company. They're dragging the company down because they are not really pushing hard to help, to be a help of it. And when heaven is trying to save the world from itself, from keep trying to go back to its own vomit, so to speak, it doesn't need lukewarm people. It needs people that are saying, yes, we have heard the testimony of the Lord, that the Lord is concerned about humanity, wants to deliver it from the house of bondage, and will charge headlong right into that mission, that task. And that's what is reflected here with the construction and the arrangement of the tabernacle as it moves on. So what you see in here is that this is also, as we were talking about in the outset, a testimony of God with us. The various things that the word made flesh is doing in the world and doing within the people of God. Different parts of the character of the Messiah coming into the altar, transforming you. It's the blood of the word made flesh goes in ahead of you. You are transformed. You go in, as it talks about in Hebrews chapter 9. You go in all the way through the veil that we were reading about here today because of the blood of the Messiah, the word made flesh, the, the word that became the living tabernacle amongst mankind as a prefigure to what we're going to see in the world made new. So as you see in this description of the tabernacle, that all of its functions really are pointing us to our testimonies of what heaven is looking to do amongst mankind, all the way from the gate to the altar to the washing washing of those who serve, that they are cleaned. The, the priesthood are not some sort of special class that, hey, I'm a priest, so thus I don't have to worry about what I do. I can be as reprehensible as anybody else, but since I got the special clothes on, then I'm just fine. No, the priests have to wash. They got to wash going in. They got to wash going out. They are not exempt. They are tasked with a very special role but they are not exempt. They are, as Yeshua would say about teachers, they are called to higher, higher level of responsibility because their job is to bring people closer to God. They got to take that seriously because if they don't, if they are in that class of like the lukewarm people or the cold people, that's what you see accounts like the whole book of Isaiah is about priesthood that has gone awry, gone off the rails. That has, and you see the book of Ezekiel as well, has gone and become and made it something ugly. So those are some of the ideas we're going through here today. Um, that's kind of where we'll close things out because we'll pick them up next week with more parts of the testimony of more parts of the testimony of the Lord because the, each one of these parts and each one of these elements of it is an important part 
of how we are transformed and how you could say the word made flesh is working in the world and then the spirit of God working within us as temples of the spirit of God, each among us. And as we close out, we see that passage that we saw back there in the, in the book of Luke in the account of the woman who was, <laughs> who was so thankful for her cleansing, so thankful for her cleansing that she poured out this massively expensive, massively expensive ointment on Yeshua's feet and was drying her, drying it with her hair and just weeping upon the feet because she had an experience like we're going to see with Israel at the golden calf. Fallen down hard. She knew she went down hard. And she also knew that heaven reached down to where she was and pulled her up. She saw the hand of heaven coming down to pull her up. She grabbed onto it and heaven pulled her up. Changed her from where she was into someone different. So thus you see that this this contributions of outpouring that you're seeing in Israel of people that are seeing, hey, we don't want to go that way anymore. But as we'll see as the, as the account of the Exodus continues on, that that one expression at the golden calf where people say, oh, we saw that that kind of rebellion against God doesn't work. It is heading us down the wrong direction actually away from the one who saves us, what we actually should be doing is growing closer to the one who saves us. So you see that these particular renditions are other examples of like an older woman who came in and was, gave just two little coins into the treasury, and Yeshua pointed her out and said, hey, this woman put in two little coins and then some other person came into the temple and dumped a whole load into the offering. Who gave more? And Yeshua said, that woman gave more. Why? Because it was an outpouring of her heart and thankfulness to God because it came out of a huge amount of what she had. Not just skimming off the top like the guy who dumped the whole load of cash in the offering. It was a huge expression of what was going on. So hopefully we'll see here that even these descriptions that we're going to read may seem arcane. The one thing that they do help us to do is allows us to, even if the visualization is not... Uh, <laughs> not entirely accurate uh, to what may have been, we can actually reconstruct it to see what it was looking like so that we can actually kind of go in and walk in there like with the priest did to see what is being revealed into it. And one of the traditions that has come about 
down through the centuries is what we call Havdalah. And that is one that comes at the end of Shabbat. And Havdalah just means separation. It is a separation between the time of the Shabbat, which is a sanctuary, a mishkan in time, and the rest of the week until the next Shabbat comes along. Now, each one of these divisions in Hebrew is called Avdalah. It is a separation. So again, it is a message that you're getting from the Mishkan itself, from the tabernacle itself. What are you separating yourself from in each time you move from one stage to another? You might have seen in a movie where someone is maybe going into some high-tech facility or high-security facility or some extreme clean room facility. What do you see? Checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint after you go in. Why? Not cross-contamination. But also, you could say, need to know, need to access. There are certain places where you just can't go yourself. And that curtain that we read about here today, where the altar of incense is, that's like the no-go zone. Even the high priest can only go there with special permission once a year. But we get the picture of the great high priest in the letter to Hebrews. He takes us in. He takes us in whenever we go through Messiah. He takes us into the presence of the Lord. Yes. Toward the dividing line. Yes. And showing that that division between the most holy place and the holy place is torn. There is one who is providing the way in through the veil. So this is a picture, a picture of. There are some certain things in the world that don't belong in the realm of the creator of heaven and earth. When people come out of addictions or this and that and the other, you also have your havdalot. You have your havdalot, don't you? When you decide, hey, I don't want that life anymore, what do you do? You put a wall of separation there. Like, that stuff stays outside. And thus you see, like when we uh, go through in, in uh, just after the, the Shema, the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you see that you also put the words of God on the doorposts of your house. Why? It's a sign of Havdalah, separation. It's a reminder, yes. It's a reminder that the things that don't are on on the same page with the testimony of the Lord, what's written on there, that stays outside. That stays outside. So when the Apostle Paul is saying you take every thought captive and you bring it into submission to the law of the Mashiach, the law of the word made flesh, the law of the word of the Lord, that we take these things and we have walls of separation in our life. And you analyze what's coming in. Just like if you have a, a virus scanner on your computer, it's what? Always checking, 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 checking. If you have a firewall on your computer, hopefully you do, <laughs> that's checking all the time to see what's coming in. Does it belong? Is it 
malicious, keep it out. Is it good, beneficial? Let it in. So in the same way, then there's another, it's an ancient uh, Hebrew uh, argumentation method called kal v'chomer, or light and heavy. So just like with a firewall on your computer or a virus chucker on your computer, how much more then is the word of God to be our virus checker, our malicious hack firewall of our lives between the stuff that is fit to approach, we call that holy, clean, and the stuff that needs to stay outside. But as the Lord draws us closer, draws us in, just like as we go through the tabernacle, go in the front gate, get transformed, and you transformed through the blood of the offering and what it represents in the ultimate offering in the word made flesh, it goes on ahead of you into the presence of God. So you go into the presence of God. So any last thoughts as we close out here today? Uh, yes, uh, Sean, uh, go ahead, please. This is just my own experience. It's just in, in the revelation, it, why it was so important for me to hear after he says, I have brought you out of the house of slavery, therefore have no other Elohims before me. And that was their whole life. That was my whole life. I didn't even know it. I was asleep most of the time and, and didn't know that I was committing adultery and idolatry and all this stuff. And there were other Elohims attached to it that were hard for me to, to see anything, nor less to want to, I was lukewarm. That's, yeah, lukewarm. That's where other Elohims and those things leave you. And the fear of the Lord of him spew me out because I'm lukewarm is not a pleasant thought. <laughs> yeah. Not, not pleasant indeed. Pamela, you have your uh, hand up here. Go ahead, please. I wanted to make a comment on that, uh, Mark 12, verse 44. It says about the money that was uh, dumped in the treasury. The others put in money out of their excess, like what's left over. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. And then the other comment I wanted to make was when they were making the, the curtains and the garments, they had cherubim on them. So they knew what they looked like. Yeah, the cherubim. Yeah, it's, um, you get depictions of what uh, otherwise known as the cherubs, the uh, cherubim, um, what, they, what they look like. We only get small little glimpses, like in the book of Ezekiel, you get some little small little examples of these levels of um, servants of God. You call them the seraphim or also the, the seraphs and the cherubs different levels of what they are. We can get guess from their name of what they do, and we see from the de depiction of them as to their name, cherev means one that covers, one that, that covers or separates. So thus you see them like at the garden when the uh, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, there are two cherevim there with flaming swords at the gate to just say, hey, this is not the realm anymore where you can just freely walk with God. You decided to go after the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Try to look for knowledge of it apart from the one who created everything. So there will be a process as, as foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There would be 
a process through the seed of the woman, that seed of the woman being what is the word made flesh eventually, that that would be the process through you would get back into the garden, get back into the garden. So no coincidence that the word made flesh factors in big in Revelation because what does it say at the beginning? This is a revelation of what, or I should say whom? Of Yeshua Messiah. Yes, Jesus Christ. That is what it is. Uh, Larry, uh, commenter over here. I mean, just kind of a, as a as a, a thought, <clears throat> when they were building the tabernacle, they used uh, 29 talents <laughs> of gold, which would work out today to uh, 50, 50, let me see, 54 million, 59 million, 146,000 dollars. Yeah, that's quite a lot. And that sounds like a lot. But you want to look and see how upside down our culture is. We do one aircraft carrier for 10.8 billion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But still, this is a lot of money for them to put together. I bet you that calf didn't cost that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Go ahead, Ann. Yeah, I I just wanted to comment. the The name cherubim is um, of the Lord. The cherubim, like you described, are watchers of the uh, Garden of Eden. There, um, but in our in our culture, we have cherub, you know, and Valentine's Day, and and all these. Yeah, not um, not the fat little babies with the wings. Yes, right, right, right. So the idol the idolatry is right there too. You know, God God's got his truth and that cherubim but then the devil has his counterfeit and the cherub and uh, we you know it's so easy to fall into it you know with chocolates and sweetness and roses and all that you know and and yet it's a cam- mm. it's it's a camouflaged uh deity you know so, so okay so. yes uh rose you have a comment question uh, for you uh when service is over Mm-hmm. Would you be opposed to uh, an anointing? Oh no! And prayer, we lay hands on you for prayer. Always, always appreciate it. Yes. Okay, that's what we'll do then. I mean, any other last uh, thoughts as uh, close out here, uh, Sean? I, I'm not as quick as the other kids. It, 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 as this thing was going on, I'm, I'm like, wait a minute! All the uh, stuff before they left, they were told to gather all that booty, right? Of the gold and all that stuff. Yeah, they, I knew that was going to be used for the tabernacle later. I yes, guess. and part part of uh, what was, or I should say, a lot of this stuff was uh, because Egypt was brought to its knees, and they were so thankful for Israel to go that they just heaped all this stuff upon them. Just get out, because as you saw, one plague after another after another, it just hammered the people of Egypt down, or they're like, please, just leave. So that's where it says, you know, they, uh, various translations, they spoiled the Egyptians, they uh, basically looted the Egyptians, because they were, the Egyptians were just heaping all this stuff upon them. Just go. Use that for the tabernacle later. Yes. That's pretty amazing. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.